Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, J.M. Prater, and tonight we are sitting down having a discussion about uh, Kay, as played by Ryan Gosling in Blade Runner 2049. Uh, and today we are joined by uh, our contributor, Micah Green, Patrick's Hi. partner uh, in crime, um, <laughs> in uh, time <laughs> crime. You guys commit a lot of time crimes. You never have any time. Um, we do commit time crimes. <laughs> we're, we're on the run from the law. And we are joined by our contributor and fellow partner, Dan Ferlito and Patrick Green. And Dan, you're going to introduce what up, dudes? Our, our guest tonight. Yeah, so we have a special guest on who's one of our uh, listeners and avid uh, voicemail caller in. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Peter from Wisconsin, as we all know him, and he introduced himself. And uh, yeah, he was very gracious. He, he when I did the first uh, listener feedback episode, um, you know, I had to summarize maybe twelve calls from Peter over time on a bunch of different concepts, and I noticed that a ton of it was on K. And so I kind of kept a note of it, and I was like, yeah, it'd be good to have Peter on our episode uh, when we actually do the episode on K. So we invited him, and he was gracious enough to take the time to be here. So we're uh, welcome, Peter. We're excited to have you on the show. Yes, Thank you. It's here. great to be here. Thank you. So we are here to discuss Kay, and Kay is a character that uh, we haven't really discussed at all. Um, we've been talking about, as our listeners know, as we know, a lot about Joy, a lot about Rachel, a lot about Rachel 2.0, a lot about kind of the world of Blade Runner 2049, but really the heart of the film, or one of the hearts of the film, is Officer Kay. Um and I think we, we should start out kind of getting a general overview of what impressions people have uh, with Kay. But before we do that, um, what we like to do here is when we have new guests on, we like to kind of ask them about their backgrounds and how they got into Blade Runner. So, Peter, thank you again for coming on the show. And I'm curious what got you into Blade Runner and uh, how long ago was it? What was your first experiences? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, this is, first of all, like Dan said, most of the time I'm calling in and a lot of time it's from the road. So this is very odd to be sitting down with you guys, actually, let's say in the studio and, and talking about this. So it's very cool. Um, so Blade Runner, at least my first introduction is, is a lot similar to, I think what a lot of yours were in that I was probably under 10. So likely watching it when, you know, technically you're, you shouldn't, you're not supposed to, but really it, it's, it ties a lot to my, my dad. He was always watching old Westerns, um, a lot of old science fiction type movies. And I just remember at, at one point, our, uh, an older house that we had going down into the basement, probably some night I was supposed to be in bed and him letting me sort of sit next to him 
on the couch and just watching this crazy movie, which at the time I had no reference point for as far as, as most movies. I, I think I was much more into to action and, you know, your typical sort of action hero movies. And so this, this sort of noir, which I, I, I'd seen, movies and often they sort of bored me and initially I think I'm almost positive this was had to have been the original version with voiceovers and Harrison Ford sitting around sulking and oh man this is not that great but then <laughs> anytime he'd, he'd jump that spinner and, and travel through the city it was just like whoa and so that was it. I mean, a, a lot of my tie into the movie, I think, and I think you guys have talked about that before too. It, is, it has to do with you know just watching movies with my dad and and kind of being introduced to this whole other world of of movies that were out there. There was, there was something so special about being introduced to a world by somebody you look up to, you know. Uh, especially as a young person, like like I can tell when when we watch these movies with our kids that um that they they, they like they know what's going to be a special experience and so they're more open to it. Then I think a lot of people who kind of st- like I actually stumbled across Blade Runner as I've talked about you know before um not by having been shown it by anybody but just finding it in a store and being like what is this thing you know and then watching it and, and loving it but not having anybody to like explain it to me so I was like what what am I looking at you know that is so your personality to <laughs> find something yourself be like what is this I'm watching immediately <laughs> right and right and then <laughs> and then being confused about it but yeah. I, I definitely feel like that it's it's interesting how be, being introduced to a movie by a family member can have that effect on you and you were only 10 so you, you were quite young when you got into it yeah and I again I didn't really know what I was watching and I knew there was something about it maybe I shouldn't be because uh, as I recall it's you know it's at night supposed to be asleep and it was just one of those moments where you're like this is definitely something and then that stuck with me and then it probably wasn't until middle school that uh, I met a group of friends who are all into the same type of stuff into science fiction and all that type of things everything that goes with it and I, we'd do we'd sleep over at a friend's house. Mom would work um, third shift, and we'd all be down in the basement just watching movies. You know, typically horror, science fiction. I remember finally him popping in Blade Runner, and that's when it really hit me. It was just like I remember this. I've already had an IQ test this year. I don't think I never had one of these. Reaction time is a factor in this, so please pay attention. Answer as quickly as you can. Yeah, sure. 1187 at Hunterbosser. Yeah, that's the hotel. What? Where I live. Nice place. Yeah, sure, I guess. There was an escape from the off-world colonies two weeks ago. Six replicants, three male, three female. They slaughtered 23 people and jumped a shuttle. An aerial patrol spotted the ship off the coast. No crew, no sight of them. Three nights ago, they tried to break into Tyrell Corporation. Two of them got fried running through an electrical field. We lost the others. Oh, and I wish I could have hung out with your friend group. Yeah, <laughs> it was perfect because I mean that's that's the same group of friends that introduced me to Alien, Aliens, just that whole space genre of. Sort of in in isolation, in in 
in the world of 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 technology and just that whole it's hard to explain but just that whole feeling you know that certain vibe that all those movies give you and that was sort of the he was the curator and he always just tried to keep that vibe going and i remember just blade runner being this is the epitome of all of it and typically it'd always be the conversation would go back to yeah but this isn't blade runner or, or you know you'd see a scene <laughs> what are they trying to be blade runner here Right. right. So, that was my my initial introduction and then sort of reintroduction. And yeah, so, so I wanted to go, ask, go ahead, Dan. Sorry about that. Sorry. I wanted to ask Peter as a follow up. Um, did you get a chance to see 2049 with your dad? No, I did not. And that and I remember this it was it was this Thanksgiving or not the, well, whenever it came out it was around Thanksgiving I came home. And I remember feeling particularly gutted in a sense that he had seen it, but I didn't, you know, okay, that's fine. Um, but I remember also just, I had a particularly, I guess, amazing slash strange experience with 2049 when it was coming out. I didn't pay attention to anything. Um, similar <laughs> to Patrick and Micah, I, I have three kids, uh, my yeah, wife. Represent. And, you know, I've, a lot of movies that they're, you know, that they're bringing out sort of reboots to, and that's, you can't even describe 2049 as that, but so many of them have been letdowns that the second I caught whiff of 2049, it was, nope, I'm not even, this is, it's, I don't want to, I don't want to feel that letdown with this. It's not going to happen. I'm going to ignore it. I've heard that from a lot of people, actually, that it's interesting. A lot of like longtime fans have had that reaction to the, the initial news. Yeah, it was. It, it wasn't even a conscience like, oh, I'm not going to open this website. I'm not. It was just, I'm not even going to a website. Or if I see it, it's just, oh, Ghostbusters, the new reboot's coming out too. Oh, well, I'm not going to see either of those. Sadly enough, you know, those were almost lumped together in sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but so when I did finally see 2049 during that same sort of Thanksgiving break when we went to go visit my parents' house, a good friend of mine was in town. And he's one of the ones that I'd watch those movies with. And he said, I've already seen it, but I'm not doing anything for the next three hours. You want to go? Mm-hmm. And so, and I know each of you have described it as depending on who you're watching with, it sort of changes the movie. And as far as friends go, this could not have been the better choice. You know, this is someone who I'd sit in dark basements with for days watching movies over the weekend, you know, in middle school or even through high school. And we just sat there. I had, I didn't even, I don't, I want to say this could be very um, selective, but I want to say I don't even know other than Harrison Ford who was in it. <laughs> and it was just from the first note. And I know a lot of you have described it that way too. It, it was, I was in that seat and didn't move and didn't get out until the theater lit up at the end. And it was just, it was amazing. Mm. That's really cool. And then it wasn't until then that I found your guys' podcast either, until after I'd seen 2049. And I, and I think that's a, a testament to how great it was, too. I mean, at that point, you know, I, I'd listened to a certain podcast. I've been skateboarding since I was 10, and, you know, that's about the only thing I have any other interest in. And it wasn't until I saw that movie that I was like, people have got to be talking about this. 
Right. And right. <laughs> found you, you guys. And since then, it's been, you know, episodes about this. <laughs> and I just feel since then, it's sort of been, you know, you guys are my, my surrogate friends in, in, in the dark basement now. So right, we're there in the basement. Awesome. Awesome. This is so this is just incredible just to be here actually talking and interacting. Uh, what, you know, it's, it's funny that, oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna, I was curious. So if, Peter, if you want to talk a little about, okay, so your first, your first viewing of it, you were saying you're like, man, I can only tell you that maybe Harrison Ford was in it. So how many times did you see the film and what started to stand out to you? Or do you have moments like that? Or, and we all have had our moments. We've all discussed them. We can, we'll continue to discuss them. I'm curious, um, how long did it take you to also form an opinion about what you'd seen? Yeah, I, I'd say that first viewing, all I can remember, remember me remembering <laughs> between that first viewing at maybe 10 and then later at 15 is uh, the end scene with Roy Batty and Pris and sort of Patrick's described it as sort of the, the creepy fun house. And um, <laughs> right. That just stuck out with me because that's creepy. When you're a young kid, that scene is just – he's sticking his head through the wall. There's It's raining. There's thunderstorms. It's just it's – a, it's a scary scene, and I remember that stuck out to me the most. You better get it up. I'm going to have to kill you. Unless you're alive. You can't play, and if you don't play – And so really it was more just sort of this scary detective movie. And then it wasn't until maybe the second viewing, you know, five years later that it was more this sort of futuristic um, scene and with, with the, and, and the soundtrack at that point, at that point, you know, that's when I got into music heavily and a lot of the, more like the electronic or industrial that was out at that time. And it was just everything started to click at that point, and just that's when it became more. And I think it wasn't until that time too. A lot of our friends, or the friend that hosted that, again, if I'm recalling, it's these are people you know I haven't seen for twenty or so years. So, and so when we talk about movies, a lot of it would go to the the deeper the sadness or loss. And again, so that would be. A lot of Blade Runner, to me, it deals with kind of working through loss. And, and again, at, at a young age, we were talking about these things. And so that's when, to answer, I guess, Jamie's question sort of the long way is it, it was really a movie that was that sort of allowed us at a young age to talk about those types of things. Like, why are these Blade Runners, or not the Blade Replicants, looking to find their creator and what is it they want and it was just imagine if you could if you thought there was something you could do to it to lengthen your and so you know we I, I think at that point shifted from oh this is a movie about a detective this is a movie about replicants looking to to do what they can to, to remain remain like living so how does um how does um, twenty forty nine sit with you? How long did it take you to kind of uh, uh, what do you call it? Just kind of ingest it and have it 
you know, uh, germinate within you? Like, did you know that you liked it right away? What was that like for you? Oh, that was immediate. There was, <laughs> there was nothing. So I, I don't, there, I don't, it was the music. It was the, particularly the, the visuals, the story, the sort of re revisiting this world that you just wanted to hang on to. And, you know, as, as a listener, I think I'll add to, you know, one of the most enjoyable things about listening to your guys' podcast is you, you get to sort of revisit the movie without sitting there watching it. A lot of what you guys describe and sort of re, re-describe through your own eyes, it's, it's such an interesting way to, to participate in the movie again and remain in that universe. And I think that's what we're all sort of looking for and what's so great about the Blade Runner is you just want to be in there. And it's not necessarily you want to be in there because it's terrible. <laughs> it's, it's a post-apocalyptic world with where it does not seem fun to live at all, but there's just something about it that you can't, you can't tear yourself away from. So that was the hardest. That was the thing that struck me the most was just, I was in it. And I don't, I think Patrick's described this too in a, in a way that I feel like I didn't even blink or didn't even move from my seat or my eyes didn't wander on the screen other than just what you were watching. And it, it hit me and it just, it was, it was incredible. It, I think it, it reinvigorated or it, it brought to life the first one even more so mm-hmm. through the second one. You're saying it's like a dark world and it's not like you want to live in it. But I think for me, what I feel like I'm hearing when I hear you talk is Blade Runner feels like home. And that's the best yeah. way that I can describe it. All of those things, those uh, these characters that we know and love, whether it's Deckard or Rachel or... Roy or Kay or Joy or Love, whoever, they're all searching for things that we're searching for. Um, and they're asking questions that we're asking that a lot of people don't ask. And it just it feels like home. Like, I mean, I have a photo of Rachel 2.0 on my wall that I'm looking at right now. And then I saw <laughs> a photo of, uh, of Kay at uh, the Wallace Corporation at that desk. And it just, again, it just feels like home. I, I, at least that's what I get when I hear you talk. I'm like, it's, there's a sense of familiarity to it. Like we belong there. Um, that's the only and, sense and there's also, get. there's a sense of it being so fully realized that it feels like an actual lived place, you know? And when you're in it, you, you feel so engulfed in it that it feels like to leave it is to leave a version of reality that you've become accustomed to. Like it's yes, impossible. Yes. And 2019, I think is the same way. It's impossible to like, end the movie and then like just go do something like you know just random like you know like go to cbs you know it's like it's 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 there are films that you sort of have to pull yourself away from over time and um and some of us never can which is why it's great that we have a podcast to to sort of blab about it nonstop. and i think you're totally right peter that part of what the appeal of having these conversations is is it gives us all this recurring chance to to revisit that world uh, and to remember that it's still there and that it's not only in our head and in our heart, but it's in every all these other people as well, you know, online and people who listen, people who call into the voicemail, people who come on the show. You know, like we're all kind of in this together and we all have this this shared experience. It's almost like a dream we all had at the same time and we can't get it out of our head even though we've woken up from it, you know? It, it's very – I like that a lot and it's – like you said, it's very hard to function for at least – you know, I don't want to even give it a time, but it's it's hard to function after you watch either movie full through, no interruption, and just fully engulf yourself in it. After that, it's it's almost hard to do anything else to have any other conversations because you're just 
it's almost like anything else will interrupt that. And right, sort of right, take, yeah, take you like out something of you don't want to leave. Right, yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, it requires a lot of processing. I mean, even right. the thousandth time that you've seen the original, for example. I mean, again, we're constantly still finding new things in these movies uh, every time we watch them, which is part of what keeps them incredible. Which sort of brings us back to why we're here tonight, which is to discuss the character we haven't discussed yet, which is Kay. And I figured that maybe all of us, we can kind of go uh, around talking about what what that's like um, or what that character, how it resonates with us. And I just kind of the setup, everyone obviously who's seen 2049, it opens with Kay asleep at the wheel. The, his spinner is on its way to Sapper Morton's farm and he's asleep. Um, it's a very interesting way to introduce this character and uh i'll go last but so uh, let's go with you peter first what what are your thoughts on k how does he resonate with you oh that's 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 a big question <laughs> i mean the the main yeah i really i mean i'm I can't wait to sort of be done talking because I really want to hear your guys' take on this and and sort of is and I guess the overarching question is is exactly what Jay, uh, Jamie said in in that you know why is it that you guys haven't talked about K yet <laughs> I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it in there you know sort of plant the seed here that I think there's something to be said about you know there's there's a backlash more in recent years in movies to the to the hero. And I, I think, you know, especially when you have a beloved movie like Blade Runner to us, and then you stick, you know, someone like Ryan Gosling in the role, and it's just, oh, man, you know, he's, 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 he's handsome. And it's, it's similar to what Micah's, how she's described her experience um, initially with Joy, in that, you know, you stick this eye candy in there, and you're just, oh, man, are they just going to give me a hollow sort of shell of something? But... I did, I don't think they could have picked a, a better better actor. I know uh, Patrick's touched on it, but just so I think for Kay, what Jamie said of being sleep at the wheel is is a perfect introduction. In that you think, well, here's 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 another Blade Runner. Here's someone like like Deckard. He's not he's 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 sleeping on the job in a sense. You don't know exactly what he's doing, um, but he sort of. I think he, the way he develops throughout the movie, um, goes against everything you'd think he was going to be, as far as the the hero, or or even your generic, your anti-hero, or the chosen one trope. Um, there's just there's a personality that's that he he gives up, brings you above. I think all those those sort of standards, and so I think the. I'm more interested, I think, at this point in hearing what you guys, um, one, I guess, why Kay hasn't come out yet. You know, what is it about him that sort of put him to the back burner at, at this point? And then what is it that, that really grabbed you guys? I think that that first part is a really interesting observation that I think we should unpack a little bit. Um, Micah, do you want to share some of your thoughts on Kay? Sure. I have a lot of them, of course. Um uh, thank you for remembering what I said about Joy, Peter. Um, it, it's a similar thing that struck me about Kay as well, where 
you know, like I'm not one of the, I was never one of those girls who was like kind of obsessed with the hotness of Ryan Gosling. Like I didn't even respect him that much as an actor. Like I, I knew he was talented. So when I saw that he was in the movie, I was like, well, he's probably going to be good. Like, but I, I like you, Peter, thought he, it was probably going to be um, a sort of, you know, like expected, not generic, but just like, oh, he's the hero. He's the good guy. Like, he's probably going to be Rachel and Deckard's son. Like, I even had that thought. But um, I was so pleasantly surprised. And, and like you said, I don't think anyone else, like, any, it's like trying to think of someone else to be Deckard, you know? Like, I don't think anyone else could have, could be Kay. He was, he was just so um, intoxicating to watch, just the subtlety and everything. And I think um, my thoughts about, like, how much Kay means to me can be summed up. You guys are going to laugh, but, like, <laughs> it can be summed up in, in um, this observation that I made about his, his, um, Back and forth with Joy, of course, you know, my favorite. Um, I was re-watching the movie the other day, and uh, the first time we see Joy advertised, uh, you see a big, purple, glowy, beautiful Joy, and it says, Joy goes wherever you want her to. And it was like, it's like this woman's voice saying that. And, um, like, this, what resonates with me about Kay's character is that is how she is advertised and how probably most people use the joy um app or the joy program the first thing he says to her when he gets her the emanator is you can go wherever you want to go in the world and she she has marketed that she goes wherever you want her to go for, but just for someone like how human is that or how like humane he he's a replicant but yet wow like what a a beautiful soul he has for someone who doesn't have a soul you know what i mean he like asks her where she wants to go. And um it just is it's very apparent how how much it, it means to him, the sacred the the sacredness of of being alive and, and having a soul. Like he feels uncomfortable talking about memories that aren't his. He just it's just it's a beautiful thing to be reminded of how sacred our lives are and how sacred our memories and our souls whatever those things are are because of the way that Kay treats them and holds them knowing that he is not supposed to have any of those things sorry that that's was a, yeah that's a really good point Micah um and I knew that joy would come up here even though this isn't an episode on joy simply okay. because there's so such a strong relation between her and Kay but I think you actually bring up a really good point about um the way Kay views joy which is i knew was the angle that we would um go for here and everything you said i mean even from the way he asks her if she wants to drink and pours her a drink knowing full well that she can't have a drink and he's just going to have both of them like he doesn't need to do that but it's almost like he he's acknowledging her presence and he's acknowledging her as a person in his apartment like that's definitely how he views her and i guess my point being I don't see any point in the movie where Kay treats her um, as any less than a person. And that, I think, is interesting and says a lot about Kay, Kay as a character. And not, not quote-unquote, just a person, but an equal, you know? As somebody who deserves a say in where they go and what they do 
and somebody who deserves a place setting for her, you know, and who, who thinks that she not only deserves personhood, but deserves to be treated just as much as, uh, you know, as she has agency as he does, you know? Yeah. He, that, that's a, that's a really good point. Dan, what, they, what are some of, well, yeah, go ahead, Jane. Oh, I was going to say, and they both have something in common, which is they're both constructs. One is physical, one is digital. And so I think it, they, they're made by the same corporation as well. Um, so they have a lot more in common um, than they do not in common. So I think Kay's drawn to that. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, Dan, uh, I, I haven't uh, heard too many of your thoughts on Kay through these episodes. I'm curious, what's, what's some of your, uh, what do you think about them? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I made myself some notes and did a little research, but um, I'll save that for a little bit later. I actually wanted to drop in. I, I was looking at, um, for anyone who has it or has access to it, I was looking at the art and soul of Blade Runner, uh, looking for sections on K, of course, and um, it does a good mixing of kind of what was going on with the production versus what's going on with the characters. And, um, yeah, I'd like to quote just a couple of lines. These start on page 57 if you have the book. But, um, yeah, one of them is kind of on the production and something that uh, was going on between them, between him and Villeneuve. But when they say, uh, during the first week of principal photography, Ryan came up with a metaphor that stuck throughout the 95 days of filming. Blade Runner is a, quote, Blade Runner is a film that Denis and I loved when we were younger and felt we were delving in our collective memory, said Gosling. That process was helpful for me because the film is so entrenched in the power and meaning of memory. It's like we saw this movie when we were kids and we're trying to remember it and relive it together. And that, I mean, that quote just totally made me think of Peter's basement and his experience with his friends. And like, that's, you know, I think we can all really relate to that. And it's so cool to see these actors who also grew up with the movie and are relating to it. Um, you know, and uh, Michael Green actually summarized part of the meaning of the movie as this film explores what it means to live in a world feeling like you don't have a soul and starting to want one. And so I think you really see that in Gosling's mm. That's good. That's good. Oh, I like that. For real. I, I to, to your question, though, Peter, which I, no one has answered yet. Why are we why have we taken this long to talk about Kay? And I think that there's some, at least from my perspective, there's good reason, and maybe not good reason. I don't think we haven't, we've avoided him. I think that Kay is also a vehicle into this world that we love. So we're seeing this world that we've loved through his eyes. And so it's almost like we are Kay, and we are yes. Spinner, and we are seeing what he's seeing. And he's taken us to see Deckard, who we haven't seen in a while. And he's taken us to, to downtown L.A., which we haven't seen in 35 years. So Kay is also, also us, um, searching for meaning, uh, a cog in the machine. And I think that's our all of, all of our... Or struggle, or the struggle of a lot of people in the world uh, who go to work, who get up, who go to work, who do the same routine every day. Kay is caught in that cycle, and he isn't. He is almost physically a cog. He is produced to show results. Um, he, by you know, by for all we know, he doesn't have a soul. That's speculation. No one knows that for sure. They're telling him that, but they don't really know that. Um, I, I, he's a very interesting character. He is many things at once, and he's nothing at the same time. Um, and I, 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 so to talk about him is to talk about everything. 
he's he's almost he almost represents everything to me. Um, he, and then you you know I I'll just jump to this one thing and I'll and I'll, and I'll pass it to you, Peter. There's towards the end uh, in the film, as we've all have seen many many times, uh, there's these mirror these mirror sequences happening. When Deckard meets Rachel 2.0, he meets he meets her, this woman that seems familiar to him, surrounded by water, and he doesn't really know what to think. Then we cut to Kay on a bridge, surrounded by water, meeting a version of a woman that he knows, but he doesn't know what to think about her, because it's not really her. These parallels are happening all the time with Kay and Deckard. Um, and it's also happening with us as well. We're also experiencing these things. So I think Kay is probably one of the most complicated um characters in this film at the same time i feel like he he holds the most heartbreak and it's also difficult to discuss that want to buy a lady's cigarette mm. oh you don't even smile didn't you hear your friends don't you know what i am yeah guy eating rice What's that? It's a tree. Oh, never seen a tree before. It's pretty. It's dead. Now, who keeps a dead tree? You're not going to kill me, are you? Depends. What's your model number? Why don't you look under my eye and find out? Oh. You don't like real girls. Well, I'm always here. And I, I do think that's oh, go ahead, part better. of it. Well, just just briefly, I do think, Jamie, that you're right, that part of the issue here is that Kay is effectively a cipher for us. Like, he's the vehicle through which we experience the film. And so, as such, we have to dig a little bit deeper to see the uh, the things that are going on with him. And I think there's a ton going on with that character that, that we don't even talk about. Oh, totally. There are things that are more subdued, because in, in some ways he's kind of like, almost like a John Wayne-esque character. He's sort of like... There's a lot going on beneath the surface, but the surface of him is basically the protagonistic, sturdy hero who does who ultimately does the right thing in difficult circumstances. But how he gets to that and the ramifications are like that lead him to that moment are really profound and philosophically interesting. Um, I, I just wanted to, put, to point out something quickly just um, about something I like about Kay. Uh, and then I'll pass it back off to Peter again. Something that I really like about him is that in the beginning of the movie, he seems to have been modeling his life on some imagined past that there's no way he experienced. Like, you know, he comes home and he lights a cigarette and drinks bourbon and and he, he puts on Frank Sinatra. You know, he's got like this Nabokov book sitting out. Like he's if 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 you weren't sitting in this airtight cubicle in the sky in a post-apocalyptic megacity, like you would think he was, you know, in 1948. Or 1955, you know, he's home with his beautiful housewife coming, you know, making him this meal. Like the, the life that he has set up for himself to relax and unwind is a life completely alien to anybody's experience in 2049 Los Angeles. Like nobody lives that life anymore. Unless and, and you've that programmed life, for it. 
unless he was programmed to be like a regular Joe, a regular detective. Uh, and they gave him all of those, all of those instincts and that kind of classic persona to do his job better. Mm. Right, right. Which maybe he, maybe he's deliberately programmed anachronistically, but I mean, but I, I don't know. I mean, why would they even bother giving him a personality? Like if that's, I, I don't know. I don't, I mean, there's, that's a whole separate conversation, but my point being that he seems very steeped in this traditional notion of what it means to be a man and what it means to be, you know, a contributing member of society. And it's so funny the way it's juxtaposed against this. I mean, like when he's sitting there with his cigarette and his bourbon and Sinatra playing and Joy is listing off, you know, like like the the statistics about like how how well it charted, you know, in 1960, whatever. Like, and it's just if you had your eyes closed, you would think like, oh, I bet this is Humphrey Bogart, you know, uh, on uh, on a cruise ship. And and then you open your eyes and he's sitting in this dump with graffiti on the wall, and he's a and he's a you know he's a replicant, you know. And it's like there's so many of these these uh, very interesting sort of pastoral simplicities going on beneath this very complicated futuristic surface and what's great i think about him and part of his whole finding a soul thing is that those things become continually more and more stripped away from him as he becomes the actual self that he was kind of destined to become which i think is an arc that joy goes on as well and probably because they're linked you know whether that's by programming or not like i think that's that's part of that i think they both go on this journey of stripping away what is expected of them what what they have thought is comfortable these other lives that they've inhabited to fulfill like what they perceive of themselves to be. And they get rid of those things and they gradually find the true essence of who they are. And what's so beautiful is that who they really are, are heroes. They, they are, they, they do the right thing in the worst circumstances for no personal gain, you know, just because it's the right thing to do. And I just think that um, there's something beautiful about the simplicity of that. Like, you know, he starts off as the Iliad and he ends up as a haiku, you know, but the haiku is more interesting than the Iliad, I think. Anyway, that's kind of my, my K thought. Yeah. Uh, real quick. I know we're going back to Peter in a second, but Patrick actually brought up something I'd never thought about until this second, which is why with all the preparations, <laughs> these uh, episodes are always very versatile. So you said bourbon um, and that made me think, well, actually, he's drinking a clear liquid, which I never really took in, a, you know, a zoomed in snapshot of the bottle to actually read what it is, um, which it, it might not be bourbon. It might be vodka or something, but it's definitely clear. But I'm just saying from a visual perspective, they made a choice because nothing in this movie happened by accident. I think we know that from having read all the interviews and it's like the attention to detail is just so meticulous. And I just realized it's very interesting, especially in talking about heroes versus antiheroes that um, Deckard is drinking something dark and he's also an alcoholic at the same time. He drinks definitely in a different style than right. Kate. <laughs> and Kate right. drinking a clear liquid which just from a visual perspective has a different look, kind of light versus dark. Now, I may be reading too deeply into things, but if, if it was another movie, I would say maybe I'm reading into it too much, but because these movies, there is just not a square inch of dirt that wasn't planned. And so right. I think it's a deliberate choice by somebody to not have him drink the same thing of the same color that Deckard was drinking. So I, that's, I a, that's a really good point. You, you know, I was mixing up the, the Johnny Walker that he has later with what I think it's vodka when he comes home. And I, that's probably completely accurate. I mean, when you think about it, the setting that he's drinking the clear liquid in is almost entirely grays, right? It's all like just different, different shades of gray and white. Um, and then <clears throat> Deckard, and Las Vegas is in an amber universe where everything is shades of yellow. Right. And 
so is the drink, you know? So I mean, from a production design standpoint, it's got to have something to do with scotch it. scotch with Decker. Mm-hmm. They then right. drink whiskey together in a moment when he's, A, discovering that this man is not his father, or he doesn't know yet, but he's, like, wondering whether this man is his father or not, and and uh, and obviously having a moment with Deckard, so it's interesting that they're also unifying over that drink from... Yeah, right, yeah, which which is a really deep moment, and remember what he toasts to, is to strangers, which is an interesting... Right. It's an interesting moment, we should, we should look more... We, we gotta get a production designer on here, let's look into that. <laughs> yeah, we will. Anyway, Peter, sorry, <laughs> totally, tr- totally train wrecked that. Uh, what are, what are your thoughts? No, this is this is the best. So I'm just going to say that this this is exactly why I wanted to be on here, just to listen to you guys in real time. And and Patrick, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm bummed out you didn't do the where's the where's the impression? Where's the the Decker? <laughs> It'd be a stranger. <laughs> yeah. is, that, is that like Batman? There it is. Batman it's getting closer or? to Christian Bale as Batman. Yeah, it which is. I just did a darkness <laughs> the other day. I'm sorry. I, I, that's the only impression I can do now is just Christian Bale's Batman. So, but it's, but, yeah, but, but, it's a beautiful one to be able to do. Oh, that's really good. It's perfect. <laughs> I love Batman. So, so yeah, the way I sort of, uh, a couple different things, there's a lot of stuff and I, I, I tried to kind of do some, do some notes here to, to hit each of your guys' things as well. Um, I think going to Jamie that the, I sort of wish I didn't like K so much just because as Jamie said, to talk about K is to talk about everything. Um, Dan has seen, I've sent him photos, we've been texting back and forth sort of to try and get comfortable um, with each other and just get to know each other a little better. Um, I mean, my notes on this just continue to grow instead of get get stronger. Typically, I'm the type of person that you, you, you go big and then you, you try to narrow it, but he just keeps getting bigger. Um, and to talk about him really is to talk about, I think, the entire movie, in a sense, um, not only because he's in it all, but also because I think each character in the movie, aside from maybe Neander, at least from what we've seen as through through the movie itself, um, I don't think there's a lot of characters that don't interact with Kay at some point during the movie. And just, I, I think, and then to go to, to Patrick, to, to see K as, as a cipher, I think is, is exactly how I see him. I've, the, the, some research that I have done, um, someone very poignantly pointed out that, that the type of flower that, that he finds at the tree is, it's a cowslip flower, which oh. in German means a key. It's a oh. key flower. Oh, 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 what? Oh, man, I love this movie. Peter's dropping bombs on the episode. <laughs> Peter, K, like every single K starts single with K. He, he's the key. Yeah. I, I mean, to get, to get fully, you know, the, I think college level, you know, PA um, is he's the key to, to the movies. He's, he unlocks, I think, each character's sort of their secrets. I, I remember a, a big part of Evie's episode I liked. I really enjoyed that she what she enjoyed so much about about the replicants. And as a side note, I think that was one of the best episodes you guys done. That was just to to show how Blade Runner just works on so many levels and such a you know a current current and important level as far as you know Easy Evie and her life and her circumstances. Um, but just to, how he sort of opens that up, and I'll talk about it. Hear your guys' takes, but you know. His talking about um, t- 
talking about uh, and his interactions with love and sort of this sort of replicant banter they have and and Kay gets Kay gets personal with her and I, and I think Mike has sort of talked about it and this will be sort of how I like to describe him and Patrick's sort of I, I like that uh, you always go to sort of the hero's journey and I think we're, we were all expecting from prior to seeing the movie that Kay's journey was going to be your typical hero hero movie. He learns, he's special, he gains some powers, and he saves the day. Where I think it's it's actually the opposite with him, and that's why I think this movie is so amazing, is that Kay actually has and ex- exhibits his powers, I think, early on. And as Patrick says, they're stripped away throughout the movie. I think he is, he's, he's presented as a hero um, with super strength. I think initially he's able to, to take down sapper who is much larger and you know i i think his model is is built as as a sort of more of a tank um to sort of give it genres or or, or actual physical sense you know he's he's this giant tank yet yet gosling has the strength that to take him down um and i think his most important superpower um would be that he's he's constant k and I think that he, he shows no response. There's several portions throughout the movie where people ask him questions or make sort of offhanded remarks to him. And his, his superpower is to is, is sort of survival. And like Micah has, I love her description of making himself smaller. And that's, that's essentially one of his best powers. And the reason he's been around so long um, is that he's able to to meet those baseline tests and to, and to remain constant in spite of people telling him he has no soul, people um, telling him the, that he's not like them. Um, I think, it, and yet throughout the movie, I think you start to see those 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 chinks in that armor that he has regarding that constant. And I th- I think the first one is is one thing that stood out a lot to me is is one. He's, and as Micah said, he, he's just a really sweet guy. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if that's part of his programming or not, or if that, but there's something about him that he, he's, he's nice to people. He doesn't, it's, it's sort of where, where Deckard in the original movie was a bit of a snot. I guess you could say he's, he's, he's kind of a jerk. Oh, and kind he's of an asshole. <laughs> I, exactly. He's off-putting. Where Kay yeah. is, please don't get back up or... You know, he he's very he's very tries not to crack the dirt in the house. I'm right, he's he's a polite, he's a nice young guy, and and uh, you know he's someone you'd you'd be happy to to come home and you know inter- your daughter introduce you to and and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. But I think the the things that I think that start to to, to weigh in on that constant K um, sort of power that he has and sort of start to wear him down and actually make him more human is things like the first thing that stood out to me is that at the end of it all, he, he's put Sapper down um, and he goes back to smell the garlic mm. um, where initially he, he sort of plays the cool constant K where it's, uh, you know, Sapper says that it went and he, he says to Sapper, uh, what's that smell? Sapper says, that's garlic. That's the garlic. I do that for myself. And he just kind of plays, he's like, would you like to have some? Or I don't remember if it's Taysom. And he's very, no, you're good. And, you know, it's very constant. But after that whole experience. Well, he says he doesn't like to eat until the hard part of the day is done. Yeah. 
But there was something about that interaction where he decided to go take the lid off and smell it. And what does a replicant need with smelling garlic? Right. That's nothing for his job. It does nothing for his his mission. Um, I I think other little chinks, and I I think they I have never counted them, but I wonder if they sort of add up to any sort of importance. But the and I think this goes a lot again to to Gosling's portrayal of him. But just the breath, or I guess maybe Micah would know more about this from a an actor's perspective. But sort of the beats that Gosling takes and just that mm-hmm. extra second screen time or camera time that they give him after certain scenes um, where it just shows him taking a breath. He mm-hmm. sort of has to decompress for that second. And I think to, to stay at that constant, he's just sort of, you know, you, you get it all the time when you're in stressful situations where it's just sort of that. <sighs> and he does that a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think it all culminates finally in that Dr. Staline scene, which, you know, I'd like to, unpack a little maybe in a little bit but so i mean i guess what uh, my question i guess to the group would be is you know what did you see as sort of taking away or what moments were sort of where you thought maybe oh he's not the the pretty boy hero here all our memory bearings from the time they were all damaged in the blackout but there are sometimes fragments. You've got a little boy. Shows you his butterfly collection. Lost the killjoy. I take him to the doctor. There's a wasp crawling on your arm. I'd kill it. It was unclear what she was, at least to someone. This was a test. We were difficult to spot then. Was there anything unusual about how you found her? To warrant an official investigation? You know how people are about old serial numbers. Everyone just sleeps better when they know where they got to. She likes them. Who? This Officer Deckard. She's trying to provoke him. It is invigorating being asked personal questions. Makes one feel. Desire. What's interesting about Kay is a lot of the discussion that we're even ha- having right now, um, where I-, I think that there's many things about Kay that we don't know. Like, um, we don't know if he loves Joy. We don't know what he thinks about his job. We don't know what he thinks about uh, killing Sapper. We don't know what he thinks when Fraser's is talking to him about the replicant revolution. We just don't know. We can see him seeming to be seemingly fascinated with Joy, but we don't know if he loved her. We have no evidence of that. None. Um, and the only evidence that we have that Joy loved her is she says it, but anybody can say it, especially a program. Um, uh, so I, Kay, Kay, again, I, I just kind of pivot back to this idea that Kay is kind of everything. 
where he's all of our emotions, everything we're putting into him. We're feeling what we think he's feeling, but we don't know he's feeling that. Uh, Gosling gives these performance, like Peter said, that's very, they're very, um, it's sedated. It's a very sedated performance. And you only see him kind of explode during the Staline scene or when he finds the unicorn, the horse toy, and he's sitting there and you can see something happening in him. But And he's just, it's like lava. It's like bubbling underneath him. But we don't know what's happening. Whether at that moment he is, Pinocchio is becoming a real boy um, and how that's changing him, how that's changing his programming. Like almost at that moment, his programming is like, frying or whatever however that works with replicants um i i it's he he is so complicated he's such a complicated guy without him even doing that much um and yet at the same time he represents us like i was saying earlier like um what what is it what does it mean when we do the right thing like towards the end what do we see k doing towards the end of the film he's fighting with love but that's actually what he's actually doing emotionally He's fighting with love. He's fighting, does he love Deckard and save him, or does he let him go and return to the wheel as a cog? No, he decides to fight with love and do the right thing. Um, I, yeah, I, that's all that I have at this moment. I, I, there's so much to process about him. That's, that's what I have. That was a nice point, too, talking about the baseline, Peter. Um... I never really put it into context that it's not just when he's doing his baseline test that he's constant K, but he's constant K all the time, kind of even during a fight scene, you know? But um, as much as that is a constant that's there throughout the movie to a certain extent, you also see a transformation starting to happen as early as the first scenes in the movie, at least once he gets into the farmhouse. And um, Arden Sola actually talks about this because I was reading about that scene and they talk about how they compare Kay's apartment to the farmhouse and Kay's apartment doesn't really have anything for, I mean, he has a book, you know, and he has joy, but he really doesn't have anything for kind of sort of a, of the finer things in life. I mean, he's got some bare necessities. Um, whereas Sadler, yeah, he basically lives in like a, in like a container. <laughs> right. It's right. Yeah. kind of government housing and it's like where he lives because he's a, he's a cop because he's a blade runner. Whereas Sapper Morton's farm, like he has like a nice piano with all, or like a nice in the sense that it's, um, it's there and it works. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Like it's a real piano. It's, it's, and, and it's, uh, and he's got sheet music and it, and he's, he makes like, cause you guys were talking about the garlic and Kay going over and smelling the garlic. And I think that scene represents what they're talking about where Sapper's growing flowers and garlic. And he's doing these things that are for pleasure, you know, essentially. I mean, he doesn't have to do them. He does it because he likes it. And I think it's a little puzzling to Kay because he doesn't do anything like that. All he does is his job and he obeys and he stays constant and passes his baseline test. And I think it's just one of the very, very first scenes, which is masterfully done because it's subtle, of sort of some of the cracks starting to appear in that in that outer shell. And of course, this is one of Gosling's strengths, and I think this is uh, a big part of why Denis uh, cast him, or why the casting director cast him, but nonetheless they agreed on him, is because he has that constant stare, but when you, his eyes are very deep and complex in his expression. And so when you're seeing him observing, it's a combination of, right, Deacon's lighting, um, the way Villeneuve is famous 
for extending and drawing out a scene so that you can really, like Peter said, like watch that breath and think about it. And to me, like that helps me get more into Kay's mindset. And I think that you see um, sort of the inner machinations of his viewpoint changing or him questioning his, his life and seeing other replicants like Sapper, um, who of course he then has to kill, which is a whole another layer. But I think that he's starting to question what is right and what should he be doing. And you can see that in the acting, which I think is a phenomenal job on Gosling's part. But again, it gives you access to that depth um, that Kay's character has, which I mean, it's like looking into a well and not being able to see into the bottom. You can see the depth, but it requires a lot of analyzation because you don't know exactly what he's thinking. Dan, um, can I just go back to how you, I like totally agree on all of that, but you just sparked something in my mind about um, going back to the baseline test in Kay's mm -hmm. apartment. I just think um, as soon as you said that, like he lives, you literally, I think you just said something along the lines of how he lives kind of in a box. And Patrick, I know you said it's like a it's like a cubicle, right? It's so can, interesting that yeah, literally in his baseline test, they ask him, "Do they keep you in a little box?" So interlinked, inter right? What? Mm -hmm. They do. They do keep him in a little box. But also, <laughs> they do. But does it bother him? That's the question. Right, and also like, how interesting is it that in this little box that he lives in, um. There's not much, like we all said, like there's a little bit of food, there's some dishes, like there's enough to get by. And then there's a copy of Nabokov's book, which contains his baseline test. So, right. That's a good like, point. That, yeah. Is that a government issue book? <laughs> like, I'm, I'm wondering, do all of the replicants have the same baseline test? Is, is it different for every replicant? police officer or what like do they all have different baseline tests Ooh, and then, like, did did Kay get that book because of his baseline test or is that something that they kind of set him up with I don't know like it's right like why is that the only book in his apartment you know right and it's so interesting that like hey if if it wasn't put in his department apartment he went out and got that book which like, I think based on the other constant Kay but yeah, and based on the other evidence and based on the juxtaposition between uh, Sapper's life choices and where he lives and where Kay lives, I would argue that I think your first guess is probably correct, meaning that he didn't go out and buy some book, you know what I mean, because he liked it. Like, that's part of his government issue stuff. Now, whether that's something that every Nexus 9 gets or is it something that all Nexus 9 Blade Runner replicants get is obviously too difficult to answer but that's a really interesting point like right hey, it, it could be that every ne go ahead well, i was just saying it, it's interesting that it could be a different book for each nexus nine depending on their individual temperaments and you know because the whole point of the baseline test is to try to throw you off right and to try to get like an emotional response to to determine whether or not you're in control and so it could be that they pick different books based on different replicant personality types that might have different meanings to that replicant and might be more challenging to them. Right. And it, it's also worthy to note that Joy hates that book. He says it. Uh, you'd hate that book. You hate um, that book. Why does Joy hate that book? Why would she hate that book? That's very... Well, because it's the only book they ever read. No, I, I would say it's something deeper than that. I would say uh, yeah. there, was there was a discussion about Joy reflecting Kay's hopes 
which we don't really know. So Kay's hopes are to become autonomous and to become real. So that book is not going to help him do that. So that's why Joy... Yes, yes, yes. That that book pulls him away from her. Um, That book symbolizes everything that keeps him literally in line. Like you... You, that's your baseline test. That book is a tool to subdue him. You know what I mean? And maybe that, I mean, I'm sure it's all on a subconscious level, but maybe Joy picks up on that and that's why she hates it. Cause that makes yes. him more like his Blade Runner job self. Perfect. You know, his, yes. She, my she hates self. it. Right. She hates it because subconsciously Kay hates or yeah, it's, it's a physical uh, representation of his, his bondage to, uh, to the job and to being a replicant and to right. not having a soul and to just doing what you're told. And well, she's and reflecting it, his inner self and his inner desires, you know, yes. and, and so we're seeing them made manifest in her. Sorry, Peter, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say that all just goes to you. And I, and I believe it's from that book um, in our, in our pre sort of up leading up to this episode texting that Dan and I had. Um, I I think the best part and the, the, the one sort of the key uh, description of K that you can get from the baseline tens, uh, te- tests is uh, dreadfully distinct, and I th- and that goes right into the other topic that I really wanted to talk to you guys about with K is is his isolation, and sort of I think you've all talked about how the theme of this movie seems to be in some form or another isolation of everyone, or despite being surrounded by everyone, um, K is. He, he's dreadfully distinct in that he appears to be, at least in this movie, the only Blade Runner we meet. I mean, in 2019, we do meet um, the other Blade Runner, Holden, and you know we don't really get to know him at all, but there's some talk in the beginning um, of the first the scroll of the, of the movie in that the that those that, that hunt them are still called Blade Runners, and there's some talk about how, you know, your kind, and those, oh, it's it's in the opening scroll, that those that hunt them. Well, who are the those in 2049, if not just K? We don't see anyone else in the LAPD. It's full of, uh, of other uh, officers calling him a skin job. Um, I, I think his greatest part of this movie is that he's so dreadfully distinct from each and every other character, um, and, and that that's sort of his 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 journey. Um, and it's not for the reasons that you know. Again, going back to the theme of the chosen one, he's not dreadfully distinct because he's, or maybe, and that's why it's so great because <laughs> we don't really know. But you know, he, he he's not the dreadfully distinct for the reasons that. We that the movie initially would want you to suggest. I think it's more so because um, he's he's just he's different, and that's his problem. And just quickly going to to dance, he's always on a baseline. I mean, if you recall, it, it's it's not his actions within the baseline initially that get him called in. It's it's his outburst in Doctor Stilling's office where the officers are waiting for him outside. So they're constantly, again, constant uh, watching him. So it's it's everything, and uh, and what I'd like to talk about in a little bit maybe is why that he, that ties in so closely. I think to to love, and you guys have touched on that before. That I think she's always on that baseline too. Yeah, oh, right, oh, right. It's all great I, stuff. I never really. I mean, it sounds so obvious, but it's funny how sometimes you just miss the non-ambiguous stuff. I never really connected the fact that he has that outburst um, 
when he's looking at the memory and then walks outside and they're there to arrest him. I mean, I guess, I, although I think that's a really good point and it's totally possible that they're, he's just hooked up to their computer system. So as soon as he has an outburst that's outside of his baseline, that's like a little red flag pops up. Um, although I think they also track his location. And so the fact that he went there in the first place, you know, he has a handler. I mean, I, I mean, Joshi's keeping an eye on him. And so the fact that he went there, um, cause I think also in terms of the, the script, I don't think enough time really goes by between his outburst and the, um, and the police spinner showing up. So it's most likely they were actually already on their way to get him because they were like, what is he doing over here at this random lab? Like this has nothing to do with his assignment. You know, they're like checking up on him, but yeah, I never thought about that. Peter. Yeah. That, that's, that's what I assume is that they were, they were keeping tabs and staying somewhat close to them to him and monitoring his activity. And then when they saw that he likes that is a number spiked, they, they acted on it, you know? And they also called well, Stalin's establishment an upgrade center. Like he was doing something different, yeah. like something. Why is he at an upgrade center? What does he need? Upgrade? Why are you um, they're questioning. What What do you need that you don't have? Um, it was just, again, he he wasn't being constant. He was he was veering off from the path. Right, right. Peter, I, I like what you said about dreadfully distinct. And it's also worth remembering that after that, it's against the dark. So dreadfully distinct against the yeah. dark, which I think says a lot. Um, and and I, I also I know uh, I'm kind of going back a little bit, but something that I wanted to bring up before I forget, because I think we're kind of getting at an interesting point here, which is that his baseline test, the parts of it that deviate from the from the Nabokov and, and um, our actual questions to him, they're all things about keeping him away from things that would make him more than he's allowed to be. So, you know, he's asked if, he, if they keep you in a cell and then he's asked if, you, if they keep you in a little box when you're not working. And then he says, what's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Which is, a he can't because he loves joy and, he, and they can't touch, you know. Did they te- and, then he's, and then they go, did they double down on that? And they say, did they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Um, and it's like all of these things that he's just unable to ever get to. And, uh, and I just think it's just, it's, it's, it's not, it, it, I guess what I'm saying is that in the past, I thought of the baseline test really as a more generic kind of like these are emotional things that like might be unfulfilled or unrequited that like should kind of stress somebody out. But I think it's really him. It's like, these are things that he wants that they know he wants yes. that he can't actualize because of the restrictions of his situation and his programming. And as his programming or whatever it is degrades over time and he becomes more truly who he is, then he gets closer to getting to actually getting to those things. And he breaks out of that little box and he does get to eventually, you know, he actually does in a way sort of feel finger to finger with joy through Mariette, you know, and, and that crazy scene that he, he finds these things for himself, regardless of whether or not he's supposed to. And in doing that, I think, um, is launched on this journey towards being a hero. Definitely an argument for the baseline test being specifically for Kay and them being all different. Oh, for sure. Too. And Kay yeah. and Love are similar characters on different missions. I mean, Love is uh, towing the line. She's doing what she's told. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, Kay is doing the opposite. And they're fighting each other. Um, Kay is, is rescuing Deckard. Um, it's very and interesting. And Jamie, to... To that, they're even. I, I, they're both asked. I think they're both tasked with actually the same thing. They're both tasked with mm-hmm. finding the child. Yeah. Him from Joshi and and love from Neander. They have the same job. Yep, they're both right. supposed to track down clues and find things. And of course, love goes about it in a way that's just brutal. She doesn't care. 
Um, she just kills indiscriminately, whereas Kay does it very quietly and methodically. But it's also yeah. interesting that um, Love still has, she's still conflicted about killing the quote-unquote child because when she meets with Joshi and her, when, when Joshi tells Love that Kay destroyed it, quote-unquote, she says, in the face of the fabulous new, you're, in face of the fabulous new, all, your only thought is to kill it or to destroy it. I can't, I'm, I'm, might be misremembering. Oh, that's perfect. That's no, but I thought you had it right. Right, but I just think it's so, like, Love is another character that we should definitely go into. But it's, oh, she yeah. also She's so tragically interesting because she, yes, she does what she's told. And there's a huge part of her that is so methodical and she kills without, without flinching. But the fact that, like, it's when she does cry and when she does feel things and, and get upset, it's just so chilling and beautiful and Ugh, it gives me, like, I just, like, can't, I, I think that the parallels between her and Kay are definitely similar. Um, yeah. Being more dark and his being more light. Love is And they like... also both have, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was saying they both are conflicted. Well, they have mirror moments as well, uh, based on what Micah has said in the past that Peter brought up about how Kate makes himself smaller in that moment that we all really love, you know, when he's in the police station and he kind of draws within himself. Love has a moment like that, too, when the Barracudas are homing in on her and they get close, remember, because Neander's looking at her. And she she does the same. It's actually literally the same body language. Like she kind of her shoulders slouch a little bit. and She looks down. And kind of to the side, like she's like, don't get too close to me, don't get too close to me. Because she, both of them in that moment are aware that they are not equal to the people that are observing them in in terms of society. Even though both of them could rip the heads off those people, you know. Right. Both of them are, when, when they're under scrutiny by the humans who created them, they feel like they um, are unworthy of being looked at or they're uncomfortable about it. Or that something bad will happen if they if they if they stand tall and show themselves for who they really are. Mm. So it's interesting. They both had that, they have, they both have that same moment. Right. You know, thinking, thinking about these scenes, um, when you, uh, I think it was, Peter was describing how they had a similar task, you know, and I, and I thought about the fight scene, um, on the Spalvita wall around the other side where the ocean is, uh, on the cement beach, I guess you could call it. And, uh, the phrase dogfight came to mind. Because um, obviously, love directly tells Kay, "Bad dog," you know, essentially yes, yes. saying, "You're mm. not following instructions, you're not following orders." But now that I think about it, and of course, it's interesting when you think back to 2019. Each character has an animal connected to them because animals are a huge part of the novel, and certainly the lack of live animals that now have to be replicated. Um, but without getting too big into an animal theme, um, that dog. Uh, yes really really comes back and so when Micah was talking about for example um or you guys were both talking about it love being scrutinized and looked at closely and shrinking down like that's exactly what a dog does when they're sitting and like you come home and the dog like rips something up I mean there's a lot of funny videos videos on the internet of dogs acting guilty (laughs) right okay buddy who ate this shoe you know what I mean but like yeah like that's like a comedic side note but I think there's a similar thing going on where Love slumps down and kind of like that single tear is the only thing she can't control, which is an expression of that emotion that she's suppressing. And you see Kay do that all the time as well. Um, 
you know, in, in the choices he makes in conversation, when he, at the beginning, when he walks past that other cop who tells him to fuck off, you know, as he's walking past him and he kind of shrinks down. Um, yeah, I think there's a big parallel. And, and of course that a dog is, has a mission and, and like there's an attack dog, there's a guard dog, there's fighting dogs, you know, there's all these different things um, that dogs can do part of programming and breeding. And in this particular case, um, I think they're filling that role as well. So yeah, this whole conversation made me think of that. And just to take it even to the the bigger sort of bigger picture too, you know what the dog that Deckard has, and and Kate says, you know, is it real? And Deckard asks the the question. Hey, you want me to do the impression? Why don't you do it, ask him. please? Why don't and there you, ask you go. Him? So ask love, ask Kay, are they real? I mean, they're they're the dogs. They're out there trying to fetch the bones. They're trying to fetch, literally, the their masters. Yeah, and it's interesting. And they're the ones that you need to ask. They're the ones that we're trying to figure out. Are well, they... what's interesting though about that question or about that reply that Deckard says, "Well, why don't you ask him?" Because only we can know if we're real or not. Only we have our own agency. Only we can define that for ourselves. No one can tell you this. Joshi couldn't tell that to Kay. She said she doesn't have a he doesn't have a soul, but she doesn't know that. Only the dog can define the dog's self, um, if that makes sense. And I, I think about Joy, and Joy reminds me of the bear from um, Annihilation. Where no. Where there's something scary about her. Where there's she's this monster, <laughs> but she's this 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 trapped woman at the same time. You know. So she's doing these horrible things, and there's tears falling down her face. Um, oh, you, you said joy. I'm sorry, love, 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 sorry. Jamie, I I That's what I was like, Jamie, you would hate joy. Okay, no, no, no. Like, I meant love. Yeah. Hate with so much, she's that terrifying. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so terrifying, mutated. <laughs> no, I, I think I that's... I hate that bear. Oh, God, I love Annihilation. Anyway, we can't talk about that anymore. <laughs> Wrong, throw <Um>, Patrick. <laughs> Yeah, no, I That's think a, to, no, Jeffy's, the dog to, point is really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not something I'd written notes about before. It just came up now as we were talking. But I think, um, yeah, to, to Jamie's point, um, sorry, go back to the very first point you made, Jamie. I had something to say to that. About the Agent. dog, about the dog knowing, Wait. only the dog knows if it's real or not. Oh, right, right. So and in it the didn't scene, even matter. Right, in the scene with Deckard saying, why don't you ask him? So. The dog may be able to define his own reality, but he has no way of convincing you or explaining to you whether he thinks he's real or not. Because in this particular case, obviously the dog can't talk, but I think there's a parallel there where um, the characters have trouble. Like Kay goes back and forth the whole movie, or not back and forth, but the whole movie he goes from knowing for sure he's a replicant, letting us know in the beginning scenes in, 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 uh, in Sapper Morton's farmhouse, to then suspecting that he may not not only be real, but this very special human, to then coming to the realization again that he's a replicant. And so he's struggling with that the whole time. And so, um, yeah, defining your own reality and your own personhood, um, I think is, is parallel there with, with the dog question as well. Totally, and it brings back this, this notion of identity. I actually had a really great conversation with my friend John today about this, about how we, we set up like you know we kind of have this evolving view of ourselves as like a certain thing like you know like i'm a composer you know uh like jamie's a writer you know like th things like we, we we think of ourselves in terms of how the world relates to us the easiest way to water down what we are so people can understand it quickly 
And it's very hard when, when that becomes such a part of your personality to change it, to be open to becoming something different than that and to have to recontextualize your life and recontextualize the way other people see you and reevaluate yourself. And, and it, it, I mean, that's hard enough to do in terms of jobs, you know. But when you think about what Kay goes through in this movie about, like, the, the ramifications of what of if he were not this, just this replicant Nexus 9 cog, if he actually were this, like, chosen, you know, this incredible game-changing hybrid mutant, you know, human replicant thing, whatever that would have been. Like, he has this moment of, of complete rebirth, and then that's stripped away from him again. Yeah. And, and he's broke. I mean, at that point, he's literally broken, right? Like, he's just a mess. Yeah, um, and then clean. on top of that, yeah, physically a mess, but on top of that, he's just emotionally completely ravaged. He's lost joy. He's lost a sense of the mission that he was on. He's hiding, you know, he's being chased, and he's suddenly uh, lost sight of the mission that he was doing in the first place. He doesn't know where Deckard is. He's defeated, and he also is is now, all of this hope that he was more than he thought he was is taken away from him, which at first was such a tragic thought that he screamed and kicked the chair and got arrested. And then, you know, he comes to terms with it and becomes proud of it, and he, and he realizes that he does have this journey, and that he is more than he thought he was. And then when that's taken away, it's like he has to completely bottom out and then reset himself. And then what's so beautiful about Kate, and what I think is so great about Gosling's portrayal of him, and so amazing about the way that the character was written, is that in that final act, that it's not even like the third act, it's kind of like the you know fifth act out of five, but after the Sepulveda, in, in the sort of the Sepulveda wall to the end section, um, we see this like complete noble hero who who decides that like he doesn't have to be any more or any less than what he is and he now knows what he is because he's gained and he's lost and he's gotten to the end of his road and who he is is just a good guy like he's just a good person and there's something so beautiful about that you know he's just, he is constant but what's great is that his constancy is is good you know he doesn't have to follow orders because within his heart he knows what to do and to me like that's sort of his like I don't want to make this too Pinocchio-ian, you know, but like that's kind of his like gaining a soul moment is he realizes that he's not defined by what others have, have set up for him. He's defined by what he does and what he and the actions that we do as people make us, right? So for, for, I think for me, that's his heroic journey. And it's great because most movies and most books end with a hero doing something, you know, explosively heroic and saving the day and running off into the sunset. But in this film, he dies at the end. He dies alone on the stairs uh, in the snow, having done something noble and difficult for no personal gain, but because it was the right thing to do. And it's a very quiet, very elegiac, beautiful way to let go of that character. I, I just love Kay. I really do. And much like Christ, he is pierced in his side and in his hands. It's true. And not to, okay, now I, now I have to bring it. But I wrote down and I was like, I'll just save this for later, but if I don't get through this. Um, first, I have a really quick side note before I get into my main point about the scene we're just talking about right now, about the death scene. But um, the bees, the beehive that's outside in Vegas that's Deckard, that are Deckard's bees, you know, I've always struggled to find the meaning of that because I'm like, okay, I know this is full of metaphor and meaning, but it, I'm going to have to watch this movie like 50 times before I start to figure this out. And researching K, one thing it made me think of is, you know, bees 
are have that sort of that hive mind insect mentality where like all have a task and that's what they're doing and they're kind of all the same and and so i i see the connection there with replicants where and he puts his hand and pulls it out and it's full of bees and he's just staring at it and you know the one thing that it makes me think of is the his lack of free will or whether he has free will or choice because he's looking at these bees and it's kind of like well these bees are happy or essentially they're, they're going through their lives doing what they're programmed to do and they don't seem to have a problem but he's struggling to find that meaning and to find whether whether there's more to what he's doing whether he should just be following orders you know and i think um that's one thing i think that those those animals in this particular case may represent um so if you guys want to comment on that real quick i, I really want to go to the bigger point at the end of the movie but i'll i'll take a second to see if you guys have anything to add to that yeah, my quick comment to that would be I, I, I love his juxtaposition to the to the the uh, the row or the, the rebel replicants, I guess, Frasia's group. And I see them not as as sort of helpful to him. I see them as sort of that that hive mentality. I mean, they're just the same as as Yoshi in a sense where, you know, they they see something in it being Deckard. And they want to destroy them. And yes, I understand that, that that's to ultimately protect the, protect their race. But I, I think it's so interesting that I think they they expect him to blindly sort of fall in line. And okay, you're a replicant with the implanted memories like us. Let's go get Deckard. And he goes, but it's completely for his own reason. And you know whatever that reason is. And Deckard asks him the same question. Um, it's interesting, but I, I love that part. And that, that's part of what made me love Case so much is that even in the face of, of he's dreadfully distinct, even from these other replicants that have sort of rebelled and, and he's not going to just fall in line. So I, I really enjoyed that part. That goes to that hive mentality. That's a great point. Um, cool. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me move on to that end scene because this is like of all my notes this is the one point i actually wrote down and started to really dive into and to me it's the juxtaposition between k and roy from the first movie um i see a lot there in terms of kind of finding the nature of humanity and your humanity and finding the meaning and the purpose of your life and in the original movie you know, Roy is trying to get more life, talk to his creator, find out the nature of his being and, and what's going on really. And, and he's very, very childlike in some ways. You know, he's next to six. He's a younger model. He does not have implanted memories. And so you see him struggle with that, where sometimes he reacts strangely and smiles or giggles when it's like there's nothing funny going on. But it's I think it's him wrestling with his emotions. And in that end scene. Uh, in the third act of the first movie where he makes that very deliberate choice to save Deckard when he could have easily done nothing. He didn't even have to kill him. I've, I've mentioned it before on the show because that seems so powerful to me. And in the end, you know, he sits down and it seems like he's found peace. He's found meaning and purpose to his life. And he's kind of connected to his humanity because again, he's not a human but it depends on how you define it. If you define humanity by the actions you choose to take and not how you were born or created, then I think Roy has found that. And by comparison, um, Kay also saves Deckard. He literally takes a similar action. It's just a more active role instead of, uh, um, yeah, obviously the circumstances are different, but 
again, by the end, I think that he's found purpose. He took all this action to make sure that Deckard could meet with his daughter. And he's found his, his version of humanity. He's found his own humanity and he's very much at peace. I mean, people ask on the online group, like, Hey, did you, did you ever see Kay smile? You know, like, does he ever, you know, and he cracks a couple sarcastic jokes or there's a moment like that. Um, but I think if anything, he's got a smile in that last scene. I mean, he really, in his moment of, of death or dying is really depicted as being at peace. And then of course these filmmakers tie it all together by playing tears and rain. And I think there's a very direct connection there. Um, yeah, there's definitely a reason why the only musical tie-over between the two films is in that exact moment, I think. Right, yeah. I mean, that's why it's impossible to not talk about the old film and some of the old characters. Um, sorry, uh, yeah, I really see that connection between Kay and Roy. You see a lot of that. It's also displayed physically sometimes by the whole, um, I call it the hands theme, but the character turning the palms up towards your face and looking at your hand. And I think that it's a very ancient and very normal action to sort of uh, um, check reality. Like, for example, uh, um, if you were to get intoxicated on a drug or on alcohol or whatever, I think that's very common for people to do is to look at their hand because if your reality is being distorted, your hand will look funny. It might move around or, you know what I mean? Like, so I, I, I it's um, in terms of body parts and physiognomy, it's the easiest thing to turn towards your face and kind of check your own body and check yourself to see if you're okay. And Dan, can I, can I just jump in for yeah, one sec? I'm sorry. Um, but that's, that I had notes on that too. It jumps right to, to joy. I mean, when she's up on the roof for the first time with the emanator, you see her take a second to register that her hands are feeling water. And as well in that final scene, it's Kay registering that the snow is actually falling and melting on his hands. And then it goes again to Dr. Staline in the last scene where she's standing there in the snow and it's not registering on her hands. And I don't know what that means or whatever, but that, that stood out to me when you said hands, that there's so many points about what's well, the, going on. The snow is a hologram in that particular scene that you're talking about, right? So right. That it's not falling on her hands. Whereas... Um, yeah, Joy is seeing real rain, but falling on holograms. So it's not really hitting anything. But yeah, no. The programming I, updates so that it does. She appears to be getting getting get drenched. That's no, yeah. you're right. That's a great point. I, I forgot. Of course, her hair gets all wet. Yeah. So the programming is reacting to the environment. Mm -hmm. And you can hear too in the sound design. You can hear like you know, it's like, that it's like this sort of digitized sound that that it's reacting to the to the stimulus. And now that it's outside. You know, it can actually. It can, now that she's on the emanator, she can do that. I, I always thought that. And I think that's a really good point, Dan, about the the parallelism between Roy and um, Kay at the end. I always thought that that the the purpose of that of the way that Kay dies is sort of more um, what Peter said because it's a moment of reconnecting with joy. It's like a. It's it's in that moment. I like to think that he's remembering the first time that she went outside with him. And how the rain fell yes. on her hands, and it was a yes. moment of sort of transfiguration. It was like a changing of state, right? Where she was going from being tied down and completely at the at the will of this, you know, overhead projector thing, to having some degree of autonomy and becoming what she always dreamed of being. And like to him, I think that was a moment that he felt. That was like maybe one of the first moments where he really had a sense that he was like a heroic person or a good person. That like, you know, that he 
did this terrible thing. He killed this Nexus 8 and then bonus because of it. And he chose to make the bonus something for her because he knew it was important to her. And oh, I think, she um, never thought of that. Right? And so I, I think yeah. as he's dying, he's remembering, that's like his, his moment of like, oh yeah, I did the right thing. Like, it, and 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 the and the and that to him I think that's like his favorite memory because it was a moment where like he did feel you know hand to hand interlinked with somebody and he's looking up at the snow falling on his hands and this thing that has been so oppressive you know like this constant precipitation which in Blade Runner is is deliberately very oppressive like this it's always fucking raining it's like miserable you know and but in the snow there's this beautiful moment of transference where it's quiet and it's white and. And it's, and it's pristine. And as he's fading away, and he looks at his hand. He's remembering that night on the on the roof, I think. And um, and it's and it's. But now it's it's been transfigured, and it's this beautiful, soft, pillowy thing that he can fall asleep in. And I think he's and with his dying breaths, remembering joy and reconnecting with her in this moment, remembering the best night of his life. And how beautiful is it that? Um... His memory, I mean, if this is all true, like how beautiful is it that that memory is not a memory implant? It's a real memory that he made him, the replicant K, not anything like um, what was implanted or anything that was someone else's memory. I think that's, um, it's really, it's like a special and very right. attractive. Yeah, um, that's, that's a great that way to think story. about it. Right. Yeah. That's that's beautiful. I mean, I don't think Jamie's gonna let a comment stand that you're gonna tell us that Kay was thinking about joy in his last moments. I know Jamie. He was can. thinking about joy, all right. Well, <laughs> it's, all, it's all speculation. Jamie's gonna be like, "Well, joy was really a garbage compactor with." Uh, in, uh, in, so. See, it just shows you. You guys, those comments just shows that you don't listen to me. You have no idea what I'm yeah. saying. <laughs> yes. Joy's joy is more of an experience of Kay than she's an experience of joy. You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this is going episode. We're an hour and a half into this thing, and we're not making a joy episode. But we're going to enjoy it. Not if I have anything about to say about it. Act this, but it is almost eleven o'clock for us, and so we got to we got to wrap this. Up. I will say this though about Kay. Um, I, I think Kay is such a character where he is such a vehicle, um, even though he is complex and there's a lot going on with him. And but most of what we've discussed about him in this episode and I said this earlier, is mostly speculation. We're speculating. We don't know for sure because we don't really know what Kay was thinking. We don't know what he was feeling. We might, we don't know anything. We are just supposing. So nothing is definite, which is great science fiction. We, you know, we can, it can kind of become our own thing. Um, maybe some of it's true. We don't know. Maybe some of it's backed up in the art of, the art of, uh, or the art and soul of Blade Runner. We're not really sure, but we, we don't know. We don't know anything. Something that I love is that when the script was was leaked, I remember being like, "Oh, like all our questions will be answered. Like now we're gonna know everything." And now I don't. I know. I know even less than I did the first time, because yes. like now, like there's just more questions. Because the whole story is structured to be like very beautifully ambivalent. Even like when there are opportunities to be clear about something, it's deliberately obfuscated. And I think that um, I think that's why these conversations are so fun. Which it should be. I don't. I, I think certainty is bullshit. Um, no, that's I, what we love. Yeah, fuck certainty. Like I, I, I don't I, even know if Deckard's dog is real. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just tell you that I, I think the the thing that I love most about as sort of a, a listener turned participant now 
is that through the discussions that we all have of these characters, I think everyone tends to, like Jamie said, it's it's how we see it, and it's all speculation. But in in hearing each of you talk about each of these characters, you know, as a listener, I've learned about you guys, about your life experiences, about how you see the world, and I think that it's just such a vehicle for all of us to sort of, to, to you know, Patrick always talks about reaching out in the great expanse through these computers that. <laughs> You know, we really sort of learn about each other and, you know, uh, to, to tie that sort of full circle here, you know, that's why at that end moment, when, when Deckard says, you know, what am I to you? And, you know, that took me immediately right, right back to my basement. And I'm like, you're my fucking dad, <laughs> you know, and like, that's why I, you know, and you just think that's why he did it, but you know, it's not. And I believe that you know at some point Kay knew that that wasn't it but for me you know and I, I'm glad they didn't say it but for me you just want to like almost in a in a uh, never-ending story sense the camera cuts it shows young Peter reading a book in you know the basement of the school saying it's because you're my dad you know, just like screaming at the side at the sky or something it's just I, I love that it allows you it gives you room to insert yourself and in so many different places and it's not just Kay but I think what Jamie says is most poignant that Kay gets us there you know he allows us he takes us through this world and you know he's he's not just your generic you know pretty boy gosling dancing around so it's, it's right. great and he's a character who could have been so milquetoast even the way he's written you know what like he really could have just been this like just generic protagonist but it's it. But yeah, I think Gosling brings so much depth to it, and I think that the ambiguities in the writing really bring, make that character just something completely um, unprecedented. I think in fiction, um, I think I think we should we should wrap up. If, if anybody has anything else to add, obviously Peter, you know, we'll we'll have you on again. Um, this has been great, uh, and I think we we touched on some. I'm, I'm personally, my mind is buzzing with all these new things that we discussed today. Um, so, uh, does anybody have anything to close with? No, the only thing that I'll say is. Uh... There's one place that Kate doesn't take us. Kate takes us almost everywhere in the film, except for towards the end, when we are now Rick Deckard uh, at the yes. World Corporation. Um, and yes, are, that's the one character we know nothing about yet. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not even so much... It's, me, I, I want an entire episode, you just on Neander just yeah. quotes everything oh, I, I, love I love it I want to know more I love him yeah. yeah he's the most mysterious character I would say oh, but it's yeah happen. I would say that that's a wrap yeah yeah it's been great guys thank you and, and, and Peter thank you so much we, we really enjoyed all of your calls um, and um, you know every time I would see Peter from the Midwest call they're gonna be like oh there he is it was really nice to to have that you know engagement with um fellow fans like like every, every time we get this moment of interaction it's, it's really special for for us too honestly so um thank you so much and, and we can't wait to have you back on and uh yes, thank you go keep go going. more into this stuff thank you so much man oh, yeah keep, keep going yeah thanks for thanks for making you know the old basement out there in in the internet and i'll join you on the couch anytime i, I love it i love it so keep it, it sounds up. good man i'll thank bring you. the horror movies all right <laughs> all right see you guys have a good night you guys. Thank you so much. We saw you baseline. Blood black nothingness began to spin. A system of cells interlinked within cells interlinked within cells interlinked within one step. Fuck off, good job. And dreadfully distinct against the dark, 
a tall white fountain playing with Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you long for having your heart interlinked? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you dream about being interlinked? Interlinked. What's it like to hold your child in your arms? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you feel that there's a part of you that's missing? Interlinked. Interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Why don't you say that three times? Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.